came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Today we are talking about failures, something that we touched upon with Santina Contreras in season two. And we have the best people to discuss this with. So we've got um, Danny Barrington, Becky Sindel, and Esther Shaler. Welcome. Hi. Thanks Thank for having you. us. So Danny, Esther, and Becky are the founders of the Nakuru Accord, uh, failing better in the wash sector. Um, and actually, I think I was in Kenya with you. It was at a conference, right? When you launched the accord. Um, and I remember you ran the session on failures. And I couldn't go because I don't know. I was doing something else. I was probably sharing a session. Um, but Lee Bosher got me a badge. So I've got your badge <laughs> with the poo. Um, so it, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. I'll, I'll post a picture when this episode is airing. And I also remember, um, I was talking to Robert Chambers about your session because he was really excited about this accord, you know, and he kind of really uh, believed in the importance of uh, talking about failures. So just a very quick introduction. Um, so Esther Shaler is the WASH engineer working at UNICEF supply division in Denmark, and she's working within the innovation team. Um, Rebecca Sindel is the operations manager for the sanitation's prototype testing platform based at the University of KwaZulu Natal in Durban, South Africa. And Danny Barrington is a lecturer in the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Western Australia. Uh, so quite a global episode recording today. Well, welcome once again, and thank you so much for chatting to us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you all about failure, because we know it's essential, right? And it's just part of science and part of the research that we do. So why do you think that we find it so hard to talk about? Uh, I'll, give, I'll start out with an answer there, and the others can then jump in if they like. Um, I think with research, something you, I'm sure everyone has noticed, is that people who tend to be university researchers in particular are generally quite high achievers, and we don't like to fail at things when we're used to it. Um, so we also have serious imposter syndrome where we think we're not good enough to be there. So we try really, really hard to always seem like we're the best we can be, and that means never showing publicly that we fail. And I mean, the other thing is that we don't really have a good outlet to be able to tell the stories of when we fail, because journals don't necessarily want to publish uh, null results, for example, when you're showing that something doesn't work, even though it would be really useful for other people to know that it didn't work uh, for next time. Yeah, thanks, Danny. That's so true. It's something I come across all the time. And even speaking to my students or young researchers that I'm working with who are almost scared to talk about things that don't work and um it's hard to to kind of emphasize that that's you know that's awesome like this is so great that you find that this doesn't work and still knowledge right yeah and people look at you like you're crazy right <laughs> there's that too but you're absolutely right jason that 
failure is, I mean, that one of the easiest ways with science, with science is to say, here's my hypothesis that this will always happen. And if you can show one example where it doesn't happen, great, you've, you've yeah. disproved your hypothesis. You can move on to the next bit of science. Um, and yet we, by the time we get to a degree level of doing science, like we know that when we're in primary school, yeah. science, by the time we get to degree level science it's almost like that's been been knocked out of us if we're not finding something new then it's not good enough yeah very true but it's also the monetary side of it like in this in the private sector you plan for failure you plan that there's a certain amount of wiggle room or error space whereas in this space i mean especially coming from an ngo background if we get it wrong, it's seen as a monetary value that we haven't been able to use to support someone who really needs whatever it is we're planning. Mm. And I think that the monetary side of it is not planned for in a public space. Um, if you look at um, water utilities, for example, we know how much non-revenue water we have, but we don't necessarily address that as much as making sure people are using water efficiently. I remember there was a great example of one of the bosses of a water utility company blaming women shaving in the shower for, mm. um, you know, wasting water. And it's like, but look at your non-revenue water in your own water utility before you start blaming the user who's actually paying for what they're using. Um, so I think, yeah, there's that side to it as well as ego. The egos are dangerous. We could probably have a whole episode on egos um, and projects and development, right? Um, going beyond failures. But, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the Nakuru Accord, and then we will come back to kind of narrative around failures um, later on in this episode. So Nakuru Accord specifically focuses on wash. Uh, and I should have said earlier, it's water sanitation and hygiene. Uh, I've contributed to Jargon Jar today <laughs> and an acronym Jar as well. Um, but when I read the Nakuru Accord, I could totally relate to it from disaster science perspective because um, the messages that um, you are promoting through this accord um, are very much in line with, I think, what development sector in general should be doing. And these messages are those of promoting a culture of sharing and learning and actively seeking feedback from all stakeholders and in particular, of course, end users, um, recognizing that things can go wrong and do go wrong. and the willingness to share this experience, uh, and also writing and speaking in plain language. Um, so all of this we can relate to, and I think Jason and I, we have been kind of trying to promote um, on this uh, podcast. So you three are the founders of the Accord. What motivated you to focus on failures? And you know why have you decided to put the Nakura Accord together? Uh, so I'll take this one to begin with, but please join in, guys, if I miss anything. Um, this kind of stemmed from conferences. We actually met at a conference and that's how we became friends. But 
as we were chatting around sessions, we realised that people were presenting a rose-tinted version of what had happened. And as people who were doing similar work, it was a little bit on the frustrating side because we wanted to know where they went wrong so that we didn't make the same mistakes. Ultimately, learning from failure is not just about you as an individual, but as, about us as a sector. And we wanted to make sure that people were using the right words rather than having to read between the lines, which comes with experience and, and knowing the right people. Um, but also to try and get that familiarity of how we talk about things, because it's easy sometimes to talk about this stuff in the pub where it's not written down and you don't feel accountable for things, but it's not, not everybody can get that level of um, casual chat and benefit from it in the way that we were hoping. So it kind of came about from a bit of frustration of not really understanding why people were not necessarily getting it wrong, but not succeeding, and then seeing others fall into the same trap. Um, and so the Nakuru Accord was kind of pulled together as a result of some early kind of engagement with the sector. It started with um, the game show idea that we put together at a couple of conferences and then seeing how people responded to using a different format. And the idea of the Nakuru Accord is it's nothing special, but it's just admitting that we need to be a bit more open and honest in the sector. And using simple language is probably the best way to go about that. But in reality, we really want to work out how we can reach out to the people on the ground who need to hear this, as well as people who are comfortable enough in their own positions to be able to own up to it. Uh, when we first started doing it, we specifically looked for people who were far enough in their careers that they could own up to where they may not have got things right and, um, and go from there. And now, yeah, hopefully we can see other people do the same. And so the Nakuru Accord itself, um, the conference that Ksenia was um, mentioning before was actually the in the middle of 2018, the WEDEC conference that was in Nakuru, where we ran the game show for the first time. And it was through that that everyone uh, who was in the audience, it was about 80 people, got really excited and said, we really want to talk about this more, but we also think that there should be some sort of manifesto that we can be spreading sort of thing. Uh, so the Nakuru Accord is actually, every statement on there was not written by the three of us. It was um, sent in by people on Twitter and from at the conference and by email. And then we did gradually, you know, iteratively worked on it online until everyone who wanted to vote and was happy with it was happy with the wording. So it's kind of our first uh, kind of crowdsource contribution there um, that we hope is something it's really useful to just be able to look back on every now and then to remind yourself of how what you've really signed up to do. In some ways it's a really easy first step as well so we put together this uh, game show to get people talking about failures and there have been so many different organisations that have done some version of a failures database or a platform for sharing failures in the past. And a surprising number of them fail because people, busy professionals, don't have the time to go and write stuff up um, when they get home about what went wrong and why it went wrong so that it can be shared more publicly. And so having that manifesto was an easy first step. 
And you've got quite a lot of signatories now, right? I think the last time I looked at it, it was kind of a couple of hundred people, if not more, yeah. um, th which is great. You know, hopefully, hopefully there'll be more, uh, more and more. And there will be, um, there is a link um, on the show notes to the Nakura Accord. So, you know, for the audience, if you're interested, definitely have a look. Um, so how do you attract people, you know, or how do you promote the, the Accord? How do you promote the message? Well, you can probably tell the three of us never really shut up wherever we are. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty much if we have an event at a conference we will Danny, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so I mean we'll if we don't have an event at a conference or at a meeting or a workshop, um we still have been handing out these cool little shit happens badges and we have some postcards. Um and so at any sort of meeting or any opportunity, the three of us and hopefully other people who we've influenced will get up and say something about the fact that we need to talk more about failures and, and kind of share on the love um, as well as using the Twitter account um, to share failures um, more generally in the wash sector. People share them to us and then we share them on to get people more interested in talking about them. Yeah, the little trinkets like the badges are, are fantastic. The number of times I've had people come up to me at conferences saying, um, are you the person with the badges? And it's like, you can only have one if you understand what it's about. <laughs> it's <laughs> a really great a way to get people talking. <laughs> yeah, they're great. And now I, I know that they have postcards. I want a postcard as well. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> There's a couple of editions of the postcards, so you oh. might have to see which version you get. I know, and if you come to a game show, you can win prizes. I mean, we've had trophies, <laughs> golden toilet brushes with, with the badge on them. Of course, I remember the trophy now. Yes, I remember the trophy. The trophy's got through. stolen. Yes, it was the whole drama. I remember <laughs> that now. Oh, <laughs> our first real failure was right. that uh, the trophies were stolen from the first game show. Murder Learned mystery. From that. <laughs> One of the things I think is so great about this is that it makes um, science and practice more accessible to um, different audiences who are not so-called experts. And um, I relocated to the United States last year, and as you guys know, there's kind of a, a lot of anti-intellectual or anti-science sentiment going around. And I think maybe one of the problems is, is that we don't talk about failure in science. And maybe people don't really understand that that's part of it and they always like a lot of the narratives that i see here are critiquing science or intellectuals as oh you think you're always right you think you know everything right <laughs> so and i'm like no that's not what science is um and but when i guess maybe some professionals um some practitioners and, and researchers um are scared of this negative narrative about of failure so one of the challenges that you guys have already mentioned is that of reputation and funding amongst ourselves we talk about failure all the time and so failure is stigmatized so how can we tackle this and how can we make narratives about failures more positive so this, this one's probably not going to come as a surprise to to any of you but it's it's so dependent on the context um 
And so in order for you to work out how best to respond to that stigma around failures, you need to understand the underlying reasons that failures are viewed so negatively. Um, and I'm, you mentioned the states um, kind of being very anti-expert in certain areas at the moment. But then you take something like Silicon Valley, where it seems that every successful tech startup must have been dreamed up by someone who dropped out of a yeah. university, preferably yeah. one of the big universities, right? So, so there in that um, in that little bubble, failure is, is almost glorified, yeah. um, and it's you see this uh, approach of um, fail, fail, and keep failing until you succeed. Those kind of um, views, and so sometimes it's it's understanding what the cultural background is to that fear of failure. Um, is it that you're worried that you're going to lose your job? Is it being worried that you're going to look stupid? Is it that fear of shame? Are you worried that you're going to lose funding? And all of those are going to need uh, a slightly different approach. Um, so if it's to do with losing funding, for example, then you need to start, people need to be in a position to have honest conversations with funders about what money gets spent on and do donors understand that um, if you are going to be doing something that is innovative or new, some things are always going to go wrong. Um, and that, that means that money spent on stuff that doesn't work isn't necessarily money wasted. Um, and realistically, the, the shame of sharing failures is, is what the game shows at conferences are designed for. It's, it's just an elaborate icebreaker to get people to open up these conversations about things that go wrong. Um, and get them to talk uh, about what they've experienced because the more people you have talking about the things that they've experienced and what's gone wrong for their projects and their careers, the more people start to understand that it's not just them that's ever had something go wrong. It's not just them that's ever had a failure in a project. And the challenge with that is that at the moment, that's only reaching people who can forward to attend normally international conferences mm. um, so at the moment we have a, a research project a small research project with the royal academy of engineering um, which is about amplifying the voices of frontline sanitation workers in sub-saharan africa so we've got uh people who are working in south africa zimbabwe malawi and tanzania to go and do interviews with frontline sanitation workers and understand what do they see as the failures that happen in their environment, um, within their organization. Is there a culture of sharing those failures or do you need to hush it up because otherwise you'll get called in for a disciplinary? And what kind of things would encourage people to share um, those failures and, and learn from them? Because until you know what barriers are in place, it's really, really difficult to design the solutions. I think there's like an irony here that maybe as researchers and practitioners, we try to avoid talking about failure and manage to create this exclusive bubble where um, the perception is that we think we're always right or we're above everybody else. Um, and it's quite exciting to, to think about the opportunities that come just from being honest about failure. If you look at the the Nakuru Accord as a whole, one of the key things is transparent. It's be, it's about being honest and being open and 
preparing for things to go wrong, um, accepting that they will go wrong and then being open about the facts when they have gone wrong. What, what are you going to change? What are you going to do next time? How are you going to make sure that someone else doesn't fall into that same trap? Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons that it's so applicable to other sectors. It's not just the wash sector that these um, that these principles apply to. And I mean, we were talking about them the other day and with with some small tweaks, I'm sure you could apply them to most sectors. Mm. But we were we were joking that uh, taking <laughs> taking your American uh, perspective, um, Jason, we, we were saying that what they come down to in th three words is, is be less Trump. Because <laughs> if you look through there, we realize that Donald Trump follows none of these and he's not a person that any of us particularly trust. <laughs> There's a lesson we're learning there. Um, and I, I think another thing that we really talked about a lot in the beginning when we were deciding how best to approach the topic and get people to talk about it is that there is, in some places, there is this culture of uh, fail, fail better, fail again. There's various quotes out there, very, I'm sure many inspirational posters. Um, but also realizing that in the sanitation sector, in particular, I got really interested in this when I was doing a big review of sanitation marketing projects and seeing how when a project goes wrong, it can actually really impact on people's well-being very negatively. You know, people could die, people can lose their livelihoods, etc. So we really, really owe it if, to the sector and to the people that we're supposedly trying to help. Um, to be honest when things go wrong so that we don't let them go wrong another time. Um, and I think that, that's really important, you know, failure in terms of what you're doing in the lab, perhaps it's okay if you keep failing and failing and failing, but when people's lives are on the line, we really need to like step up and admit when we were wrong and make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah, you know, I think for me, this is probably the most important part um, of talking about failures. You know, duplication of efforts is one thing, right? And we are reducing efficiency mm -hmm. and effectiveness. But it's when we harm the end users. And very often, yeah. these are uh, the most marginalized, right? Particularly in water and sanitation and hygiene sector, and also same in disasters and development um, sector overall. So what would make us act differently? if we bear in mind that the users, the end users may be harmed if we don't talk about failures. Part of the research project is to understand what we could do differently. Um, like Becky right. said, or maybe it was Esther, that so many people have tried, have just said, right, I'm gonna, we're gonna get everyone to talk about failures, we're gonna have a database online, everyone's gonna write something, and it doesn't work. So what we're trying to do with the research project, and hopefully more research uh, will grow out of that, is to understand what is the best way of sharing failures? How can we get the word out so that it does get shared more widely and people are more comfortable and actually get uh, everyone involved? So the NGOs, the researchers, the donors, the UN agencies, um, all on the same footing. And we don't quite know how to do that yet, other than ridiculous game shows at <laughs> conferences and badges. <laughs> and I think that some of those, um, though, it's, it's those 
personal reminders because the way that we change a culture around sharing failures is by changing the views of individual people within that culture. Um, And so coming back to the idea of transparency and accountability, um, it's it's being prepared. So knowing that failures happen um, and one of the ideas that has been talked about before is a a pre-mortem. So rather than waiting till something goes wrong and then dissect it afterwards to work out where it goes wrong, sit down at the beginning of your project and think, right, let's assume that in 12 months from now, this has gone horribly wrong. How is it going to have gone wrong? And how do we plan to make sure that we stop it from going wrong or we can mitigate those those risks? So being prepared, uh, being transparent and talking about the things that, that do happen. and I can't, an element of it is just being brave. Um, we're brave enough to sit down and say these things to our friends over a drink at a conference. So we need to be brave enough to stand up at the podium at a conference and say those things. Yeah, and I think also we're a new generation. We're the first generation who have social media and the internet at our fingertips. Things are no longer being published in a book that doesn't get edited for another 20 years. And I think we need to maximise on this change in how we handle information, how things are shared. The reputational risks in some ways are higher because you can reach wider audiences, but shorter lifespans. And so what Becky said about being brave is actually surprisingly important because as a newer, as a generation with new tools at our fingertips, we can actually change how they get used and how they get institutionalized. And I think the reason we have rooted this in some research on the ground is because we want to better understand it so that we're informed rather than making a decision based on our viewpoints in our um, locations and situations. And the reality is, how do we make these new tools and technologies work for us? I mean, look at what's happening during COVID. Um, For the first time, a number of disabled friends feel included in our social activities because everything's online now and they don't have to think how they're going to get to a building will they be able to get inside who will be able to help them with their wheelchair or who will help them read suddenly the world's becoming more accessible and in the same way we need to look at how we can utilize these changing attitudes and tools to change the way we talk about failure yeah i also wonder whether the way we point failures out, maybe um, can be friendlier, right? Can be nicer because very often if somebody points failure out, it's like you're almost destroying them. Um, And maybe that's the language that we use, right? But if we are prepared for our failures to be pointed out, would that make everybody else's experience better? I don't know. I think you definitely have to lead by example, you know, Um, and my husband is very quick to point out that I'm happy to talk about failures professionally, but maybe not at home. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I accept that. Um, But (laughs) it's also heavily cultural. And if you look at, especially in the wash sector, we deal with some very private matters and we have serious cultural considerations to address. And the same is in our professional lives. We need to look at how different cultures talk about failure. In some cultures, it really is quite a serious thing. And 
we've had long discussions amongst the three of us about whether we should use the word failure because of how it's associated, but then we wouldn't be true to the new Kuru Accord and being transparent. So, you know, it's a little bit, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. What we need to do is, as Becky said, work out what the barriers are so that if we are going to talk about these things, we also know what the barriers are and the potential consequences so that we can negate them and, as I say, practice what we preach. Part of what I feel is the problem is the way that failure is framed generally in the, the narratives that we hear, which is as something that you should maybe be ashamed of. And so that feeling of shame is pretty powerful, uh, a powerful inhibitor to people speaking up. The other thing I wanted to, to pick up on was the comments about, you know, learning through failure and, and maybe trying and trying and finally succeeding, which are... Um, as you guys have mentioned, something that is definitely part of the uh, mainstream narrative about failure as a way to succeeding. But it, maybe it's um, done in private. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of done within institutions, and but the the organization, the group, or the individual is maybe protecting the, themselves from the outside, so they don't really share it beyond oh, those yeah. those walls. So I wanted to pick up on like this idea of it being part of competition, you know, maybe trying to become better than everybody else. And so you keep it to yourself, you fail in private, and then you can beat everybody, you know? So how do we, how do we avoid that mentality? We stop, we collaborate, and we listen. Oh, I knew you'd that's, get it in there, Becky. <laughs> And I mean, so taking the the sanitation prototype testing platform, uh, we we've tested nearly twenty different prototypes over the last um, three years. These are different sanitation prototypes that have been tested in informal settlements and in rural households. And the, the first couple of systems that we had come out, we had some similar. Some of the, the things that they failed on were very similar. And so we're in a position to then turn around to technology developers who are coming out later on in that program and say, have you, have you considered this? And quite often their first response is, yeah, yeah not time, it'll be fine. And we'll know we, we've been doing this for two years now. And what we see repeatedly is that this is the problem. This is something that will cause an issue. So here are some other people who have dealt with that issue. Um, we think it's worth having a collaborative approach of rather than one person trying to solve this issue and finding a solution that puts their system a step ahead. Let's find a solution together because working together, we're probably going to come up with that solution um, more quickly or we're going to come up with a better solution and then everyone benefits from it. Yeah, it's not one benefit if you sweep it under the rug and then it all happens anyway. But, you know, there's a lot of these working groups and consortiums, and for example, in Emergency Wash, we've got the cluster. Um, but, I, you know, it still depends who's there on the day. This is one of the things that I possibly think about too much, especially in a big organisation like UNICEF. Um, we don't know what someone's doing over there because we're at a different level. Um, and I think 
this idea of even if you do it internally, it still doesn't necessarily reach the people who need to know about it. Because sometimes we think that, as, you know, if the global advisor knows, then it will filter down. And we do focus too much on this idea of information filtering down. Um, and I think with the failure, actually, it really does need to be a bottom up approach. I hate that phrase because the reality is what is a bottom up approach? Um, so, you know, but I think and this is the motivation behind our research as well, is that we recognize that even within your own organization, you may not know when something went wrong. Um, sanitation marketing is a great example because a number of organizations tried it in different locations and so many cultural considerations. And again, you mentioned shame and we use shame in wash around um, CLTS community led total sanitation as a motivator to point out open defecation. Um, and we know that it's a strong motivator to stop people openly defecating, and yet we don't really understand how much of a motivator it is in our personal and professional lives when a lot of us are quite motivated by, you know, the carrot rather than the stick. So, you know, these ideas of sharing internally or in clusters and consortia, we still haven't worked out how to do it. And I, I mentioned it at the beginning, I still think ego plays a role here. Um, I look forward to the episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well you, you're giving us ideas now, you know, dangerous. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting to us about failures. You know, we've, we've been talking about it and this theme has come up so many times in discussions with various people, as I said earlier today. And it's absolutely wonderful that you came on the show today. So thank you. Thank you again. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Whoop, whoop. Okay. So I wonder if any of our listeners um, are interested in finding out more about you guys or your work, where can they find you? Uh, so you can sign up to follow the Nakuru Accord on the Leeds website. I believe will be in the show notes. And you can follow us on at FSM underscore fail on Twitter. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason, Danny, Becky and Esther on Disasters Deconstructed podcast. <laughs>